All right. Let's bow our heads together. After a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a great time that we have to be able to get together as believers, to be with like-minded believers who look to your word for truth, for guidance, as Second Timothy 3.16 tells us that we are to receive instruction in righteousness. And Father, we pray that we might be willing to submit ourselves to the teaching, uh, the teaching of your word and come to understand the truth of your word. And that we might recognize that the only way to come to your word is in humility, recognizing that you are teaching and instructing us and that we are to submit to your word. And it is through God, the Holy Spirit, that we are enabled to walk in the truth, walk in the light, abide in Christ. And it is through our walk by the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit produces spiritual fruit in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that we might be continuously mindful of this throughout every day. And as we study this text tonight, may we come to a greater appreciation of just how distinct you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we come to chapter 6, I'm hoping that I can make it all the way through chapter 6, because this is really an integrated whole. And sometimes when you get into certain episodes, certain narratives, certain stories in the Old Testament, even though they may take a lot of verses there, it's an integrated narrative, it's an integrated story, and we need to look at the whole story because uh, we need to treat it as a whole and not just break it up into parts. Now, sometimes it's necessary to come back and break, break, uh, break it apart in order to further explore some of the uh, doctrinal elements uh, within it. But if we look at this chapter, you'll see that I've titled this The Holiness of God. And, and you might think about this at first blush as you think about What's been happening in 1 Samuel chapter 5 with the, uh, even going back to chapter 4 with the capture of the Ark of the Covenant by the Philistines. And then they brought the Ark of the Covenant to Ashdod. And in chapter 5, we saw that they put the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon as a sign that Dagon has conquered, uh, Yahweh and that Yahweh is now subservient to Dagon and is a servant of Dagon. And we get these humorous scenes as God is fully capable of taking care of himself. And what we saw, if we put those last two lessons together, is that when it looks like God has been defeated, when it looks like God is too much for the, whatever the problem is that we're facing, God has, is not defeated, and God never fails. That God is always greater than the problem that we are facing, and so we can always depend upon him. And the way God faces and handles those problems is not always the way we think that should be handled. And this is what happens here. God allowed Israel to be defeated and to over 30,000, 34,000 Israelites to be, uh, to be uh, killed in battle and to be captured. He's teaching Israel a lesson, but now he's going to teach the Philistines a lesson. And so when they wake up the first morning, uh, Dagon is bowing down in worship before the Ark of the Covenant. That, that stone statue of Dagon is bowing down. They set him up, and, and the next morning they came in early to see what, what, what took place during the night. And now Dagon is down, and God's going to keep him down. He's decapitated him, and he's cut off his hands, and he's put his hands 
on the threshold as if Dagon is seeking rescue, seeking help. Uh, and this goes back to an image that we see with that uh, interesting story about the Levite's concubine in Judges, uh, Judges chapter 18. And so God takes care of himself, and there's this plague that comes upon the Philistines that's quite humorous. They have tumors, or the King James translated it hemorrhoids, and we looked at the word for it last last week, uh, awful, and that this is a word that is... Uh, that very likely means anal tumors. And so they're plagued with this plague, but they're also plagued with the plague of mice and are rats. And that's significant because rats and mice would destroy the, uh, the grain. Dagon is the god of grain. So God, once again, is not only poking fun at Dagon, uh, he's not, God is not politically correct. He doesn't treat uh, other people's religions with any manner of respect at all. He pokes fun at them to show that they're inconsequential, that they're, they're, they're worthless. They don't work. And, and then the Philistines, of course, have to figure out what in the world they're going to do to solve this problem. And finally they say, we've, we've got this, we're overrun by rats. Everybody is suffering. God has become a real pain in the rear to all of them, uh, literally. And every time they try to sit down, they have problems. And so, so let's get him out of town. And they went from there to Gath, I mean, to, uh, uh, Ekron and, and they're, they're trying to get, get rid of God. And this went on, as I said, for, for seven, seven, seven months. And then God is going to, uh, continue to teach the Philistines and the Israelites a lesson. Now, the lesson that we're learning is that God can solve the problem, even when it appears he's, he's, uh, he's somewhat defeated. And a couple of uh, verses that we ought to um, be reminded of. I've got ahead of some things here. Whoop. I'm going to go back here a minute, just to there. Okay. Is in Mark 10, 27, Jesus said, With men it's impossible, but not with God. For with God... All things are possible. And that's restated by Gabriel to, to, uh, Mary in Luke 137, for with God nothing will be impossible. Whatever the problem is, God can solve it. Now today we live in a world where people turn to all kinds of alternative options. Everything from medication to, uh, psychology to counseling to new age therapies. What Scripture is trying to tell us that the root problem is sin, and we've got to deal with the root problem. And too often what these other things do is, is give a counterfeit solution, and we've got to get back to a spiritual, uh, spiritual solution. And this part of this understanding this solution is to understand, understand God and understand who he is as the unique God of the universe. And so as we just sort of review this a little bit, I want you to look at the last, at the last, uh, next to last verse in this chapter. This is why this verse, this chapter must be dealt with as a unified whole. Because we don't learn God's point in all of this until we get down to verse 20. And it's in the words of the men of Beth Shemesh, which is where where the ark ends up when it first comes back to to uh, Israel. 
Then after, because they messed up when they handled the ark when it returned. Then God struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,000 and, oh, excuse me, I was reading verse 19, verse 20. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? See, that's the issue in this whole chapter. The bottom line is stated by the men of Beth Shemesh. Who is able to stand before God? What problem is able to stand before God? What situation is able to stand before God? And the emphasis here is on the fact that it is this holy Lord God. So just by way of review, the problem that we have in Israel has been this problem of, uh, of syncretism and assimilation to the uh, cultures around it. And so God is going to deliver them from this. But to deliver them from this problem, he's got to take them through some judgment, some divine discipline, before they will be willing to accept his solution, because God's solution is always radical. The, the sufficiency of God is a radical doctrine. And since I've taught this, I've had a few people say, well, you can't really mean what you're saying. No, I do mean what I'm saying. For 1,900 years in Christianity, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ has been understood that no matter what problem you're facing in life, you can solve it through the Word of God. It is sufficient. But now that we have the advent of uh, Freud and Jung and Maslow and all kinds of medications, don't you understand that there's a chemical component to our problem? Sure, there's a chemical component, but that's not the cause. The cause is sin. And if we start, and the sin certainly can have a chemical uh, impact, but the solution has to go back to solving the sin problem, not just treating some sort of uh, secondary chemical reality. Now, you have to be careful how you do that if you've been, uh, trying to handle spiritual problems with medication. You can't just quit the medication tomorrow because this medication, just like sin, has changed the makeup of your brain. It's changed the chemical construction of our brain, but not inevitably. It can be reversed. That's the grace of God. And it just goes back to whether you understand chemical reactions or any of that. Remember, the soul is immaterial. And our lives ultimately go back to our volition is what Scripture says. And it doesn't really matter what the secondary effects of sin are in our lives. The solution, the Scripture says, always goes back to trusting an almighty, omnipotent, gracious, loving God and the solutions that he gives in the Scripture. And that's what happens here. He's got to straighten out Israel. Israel's problem is moral relativism, same problem we have in our culture. And so as we saw this in the map, just to give us a background, the ark's lost here at Aphek, first taken over here to Ashdod, then it's going to move to Gath, then up here to Ekron, and then they're going to send it to Beth Shemesh. Okay, And that's when it goes via the, the cart that we're going to see in just a minute. So the ark represents represents the throne of God upon the earth. Now, what we have to do is understand what holiness is. That's the focal point that God the Holy Spirit wants us to understand here, is that what God is doing in bringing judgment on Israel is because they've forgotten the holiness of God. 
The problem with the Philistines is they never had a clue about the holiness of God, and so they're going to get a lesson on the holiness of God, that God is God. Yahweh is God, and there is no other. And Dagon is just a statue of stone. But we have to understand what holiness is, because holiness is really a misunderstood concept uh, by a lot of evangelical Christians. Uh, one of the ways I first learned uh, that I had a few uh, misunderstandings on holiness is that when I got into second year of Hebrew and we started learning how to do word studies, the first word study we had to do was a word study on the verb kadash, the Hebrew verb kadash, which means holy. And to come to understand what that means. Now, yes, most people, what holy means in English, they think that it means to be morally or ethically pure. They think that somehow righteousness and justice make up holiness. And this has been true of a lot of theology. I've taught this uh, before, but I think it's more than that. I've been doing some more thinking on this recently, and I just want to take you through about four or five points of introduction before we get into the story. I think this is a story that if we're teaching in prep school, you prep school teachers listen, if you're teaching holiness of God, this is one of the stories you tell. I bet you get a few laughs, too, because this is such a good, humorous story with the mice and the hemorrhoids and everything. Holiness is the English word that translates a group of Hebrew words that are based on the three consonants Q, D, S, H. Remember, in Hebrew, they didn't have any vowels. Okay, So the verb is kadash. Uh, you have the noun kadosh. Uh, in Greek, you have the words hagias. Hagiazo and Hagiasmos usually translated sanctification or consecration. The Greek words reflect the meaning of the Hebrew because those are the words that were used in the Septuagint. And whenever you study certain words that are critical words in the New Testament, that are critical words in the Old Testament, the definition comes out of the Old Testament. It doesn't come out of Greek. It doesn't come out of 5th century B.C. Greek. It doesn't come out of anything that the Greeks ever did. Uh, it may, the Greeks, that may help us with a little flavor or color, but the meaning comes usually from Moses, secondarily from David and the Psalms. So holiness comes from these words, and the uh, and we have to understand what that means. And there's a lot of debate over this today, a lot more than there was 30 or 40 years ago. Second thing is that the holy in English usually is thought to mean moral purity or a synonym for righteousness and justice. It's actually a lot more than that. This is an extremely robust term in the Hebrew. It's a lot more than the way we've sort of simplified it into, into righteousness and justice. Third point is that now we have access to a lot of other languages. We have access to Sumerian. We have access to Akkadian, which was the language of the Assyrians. We have access to uh, a northwest uh, Canaanite dialect, which was spoken of in an area called uh, Ugarit, which is up in what is in the country now that is formerly known as Syria. And these cognate words... And these other Semitic languages indicate that the main idea is something that pertains or belongs to the realm or the use of the divine. 
Now think about that. It's something that it, that pertains to God. It is something that is related to God. It is something that has to do with God's uh, special use. In Sumerian studies, uh, scholars have come to understand that that the concept is to be uh, focused on something to do with God. When a Sumerian priest, one writer says, when a Sumerian priest said, I am holy, he was emphasizing his citizenship in the divine realm, that he was being used by God and he served God. That's what he meant by being holy. It didn't have anything to do with his morality or his ethics or his righteousness, but that he was serving God. And he's focusing on the fact that as a priest, he's a citizenship, he's a citizen of God's realm. In Akkadian, the emphasis moves a little bit towards consecration, being set apart to the use of God, being set apart to the use of God. And in Ugaritic, it also has that same idea, something that is related to God, that is related to the service of God, and it's applied to objects and to people and to offerings and to deities. And one of the things that, that we ought to think about is that when this is applied to a temple, when a temple is said to be holy, when a, the tabernacle is said to be holy, when the, the bowls, the altars are said to be holy, how can an object be morally pure? How can an object be righteous or just? It can't. Those are personal qualities. But the word holy is very frequently applied to temples, to objects used in worship, everything that is what? Set apart to the service of God. So it's consecrated in that sense. So that's very much a major part of the idea of the word. Uh, fourth, in the New Testament, all New Testament uses of the word are built on the Septuagint. Now, remember, the Septuagint was the uh, translation of Jewish rabbis in Egypt in Alexandria in about 200, 250 to 200 B.C. The Jewish people who had uh, migrated, they, they had left Back in 586 B.C., and they had established a very strong uh, colony and a very strong base in Egypt, but they could no longer uh, read or speak Hebrew, and so they were completely divorced from their scriptures. And so they got the rabbis to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek so that they could read it. That's the Septuagint. And just it's the Old Testament, and it's about 250, 200 years before Christ. So it's a great witness to messianic interpretations because it's not impacted by uh, the coming of Christ. It's about 200 years before Christ. And so the words, the Greek words that are used to translate those Old Testament words are very important because they're the same words that are used when you get into uh, the New Testament studies. So fifth, the main idea of holiness is extremely Robust. This is a powerful word. It is much more than. It would, in some ways, possibly include moral and ethical purity, but it probably combines the ideas of separateness, distinctiveness, transcendence, and it would encompass the totality of who God is. This is one of those words where God says, I am holy. It defines God in all of his attributes. He is, if you're talking about these ideas of being distinct and transcendent, when we think of transcendent, we think of what attribute? 
his omnipresence. He is everywhere present to all of his creation. He is transcendent. So holiness not, is not restricted to righteousness and justice. It would relate to, to his transcendence, his omnipresence. It would relate to his uniqueness in that he is immutable. He never changes. And he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. It would also relate to his sovereignty because he is the creator God who rules over all of his creation. So we can see that holiness is a, a word that goes far beyond any one or two attributes of God, but probably encompasses the, the wholeness, the totality of who God is. Now, does that mean that it excludes righteousness? Well, certainly not. Righteousness and justice are part of who God is, and being righteous experientially is a part of what is expected of any believer. We are to live a life that is set apart to God, and part of what that encompasses from other passages and other words in Scripture is that we are to be uh, experientially righteous. We're to have uh, moral excellence, or as Second Peter 1 says, virtue, which is the Greek word arete, which is another extremely robust word. And all of this is the result of walking by the Spirit. So we have passages. I just want to highlight a couple of verses like Romans 6.13 where Paul says we are to uh, uh, be alive uh, to righteousness and our members are to be instruments of righteousness in Romans 6.13. In 1 Corinthians 15:34 we're to be awake to righteousness and do not sin Paul says. He doesn't say just don't don't sin when it's bad. He says categorically don't sin. Well the only way that can happen is when we're walking by the spirit. Uh Paul says in Galatians 5:16 walk by the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Ephesians 5:9 says that The fruit of the Spirit is goodness, righteousness, and truth. So this is important. And then the last verse there, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is given or breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So we're definitely to live... Uh, an experientially righteous life, and that can only occur if we're walking by the Spirit. So the final part, just as we're summarizing what the Bible says about the holiness of God, the believers in the Old Testament, the priests of Israel and the believers, were to live distinctive lives. Part of that distinctive life was their spiritual uh, ethics. In the Old Testament, they didn't walk by the Spirit, so it was just obedience to the law. But in the New Testament, we're to walk by the Spirit, and so there's a spiritually distinct element there. But we're to live distinctive lives, which is a lot more than just being obedient and be, having an element of spiritual morality. There's an element there of radically trusting in God, walking by Him, trusting in the sufficiency of the power of God to sustain us no matter what the problem, no matter what the difficulty uh, might be. We have various commands that are given. I'm just going to give you one passage from the Old Testament or set of passages and another from the New Testament. There are dozens of passages in in the Old Testament where God says, 
I you you be holy because I am holy. Leviticus eleven forty five, God says, I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. So there's this correspondence between if God is distinctive and unique, we are to be distinct and unique in terms of that relationship with him. Leviticus 19.2 says it again, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20.26, And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now that transfers over to us in 1 Peter 1.15 and 16. Notice that's getting pretty close on Thursday nights. On 1 Peter 1.15 and 16, Peter says, But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, that it means be distinct in all your conduct. Serve the Lord, be separated unto him in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now, let's get to the passage in in, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6. God has brought the Philistines through these, these tumors and this infestation of of rats to a position where they are just absolutely miserable. We know from uh, from verse from the beginning of the chapter from verse one that this took seven months and that he's gotten their attention and they're trying to get rid of him now. Now I want you to look at this at this first verse. This first verse, now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Notice the writer, speaking from a Jewish perspective, recognizes it's the ark of Yahweh and uses the personal name of God as it relates to Israel. In the second verse, the Philistines called for the priests and diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Notice they're calling it the ark of Yahweh now. They're getting the point. Now that doesn't mean they've accepted him. It's come, they, they've come to have an empirical understanding of the reality of who God is. But that's not enough to be saved. But they have enough of a recognition to know that they have, uh, they, they have been decimated for the last seven months and that this is real. Okay, so now, first thing we note is it's gone on for seven months. Now, seven in the scriptures is a number for completion. It's a number that has a symbolic value, but it has to also be taken to be literally true. It is literally, but it's God designed it this way because it would have certain symbolic overtones. And he is directing these events to fit a specific chronology. God is still in very much in control. One significance of the seven might be that they had reached their maximum level of suffering. Now, one reason we might say that is because in Exodus 7.25, with the first plague in Egypt, where the water was turned to blood, it lasted seven days. So this would indicate a period of fullness, a maximum level of suffering that God has brought on them. The text says that the ark was in the country, literally in the field of the Philistines, but that doesn't mean that they took it out of the city and they stuck it out in the fields in order to somehow alleviate their suffering. This is also just a general way of talking about a region or a territory that would include both the uh, rural as well as the, uh, as the urban areas. 
And so uh, during this time, they've moved it around from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron in order to uh, try to get away from its, its horrendous power. Then we come to verse 2. We come to verse 2, and we read, And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners. Now, when they call for the priests and diviners, it's because it indicates a couple of things are going on. They recognize, unlike a lot of people in our materialistic culture, that the real problem is a spiritual problem. But they go in the wrong direction. Now, back in the 80s and 90s when the New Age movement was real popular, people would jump to a spiritual solution, but it was a wrong spiritual solution. It was always involved some kind of mysticism. And that's what they were doing. They're going to, it's a spiritual solution, but they've misunderstood what spiritual means. And so so they're going to a pagan uh, spiritual solution. They're going to a religious solution. Now, we have a lot of that going on today. There are a lot of well-meaning, sincere people in our country who think we need to bring God back into the classroom. But their concept of God and Christianity isn't necessarily a biblical view of God and Christianity. A lot of pop Christianity... And this is, this is true in any culture at any time. There's a certain popular level of belief that is not necessarily biblical. There's a lot of religious Christianity, and I'm using the term religious in the sense that they're thinking that we do something to gain God's approval. Biblical Christianity says that, no, we can do nothing to gain God's approval. God in his grace has given us everything that we need. God has provided everything. God is only expects us to depend upon him in faith, and he will provide for us. He's not saying you need to clean up your life, and then I will provide for you. He doesn't say you meet me halfway, and I will give you salvation. You go to church. You commit yourself to uh, cleaning up your life. Uh, you go through repentance and emotional reactions, and and then I will provide for you. No, God says there's not one thing you can do to make yourself savable. There's not one thing that can make you any less obnoxious to me than you already are because you're a spiritually depraved, corrupt sinner. You're spiritually dead. I've already done everything for you. I sent my son to enter into human history and to become a human being and to go to the cross and to pay the penalty for sin. I did it all. All you have to do is accept it. That's what grace is. But we have all kinds of religions in this world who try to, and Satan is the architect of all these religions because what he does is he co-ops Christian terminology to try to put a veneer of Christianity on a works concept of salvation. 2 Corinthians 11 talks about the fact that that Satan's ministers go about like angels of righteousness. They disguise themselves as being good and as being uh, angels of light in order to to deceive and to distract. But this happened in the Old Testament as well. And one of the greatest deceptions we see in the Old Testament is the role that human religions played in trying to in, in pulling the Israelites away from God, and they opted for this human viewpoint pagan solution 
many times during this period that we're studying, during the period of the Judges, as well as later on. Hold your place here, and let's look at a passage in Micah. Now, this is one of those areas in your Bible where the pages haven't been dog-eared too much, and uh, you're getting kind of close to... It's right after Jonah, where you may have been once or twice before. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then Micah. Okay, now, Micah is written about the same time as Isaiah, and there's some great prophecies about the Messiah in Micah. But I just want to look at at Micah chapter 3, verse 6. This is a real indictment from God. God is just blasting the the Israelites because they have succumbed to false religion. They have succumbed to, to the idolatry of the Canaanites around them. And we saw incidents of this, remember, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, 40 nights, getting the, getting the uh, uh, tablets, and what happens? The people get restless. They convince Aaron to take all of the gold that they took from the Egyptians and to make a golden calf. And what did they call that golden calf? This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. See, they take, it's a half-truth. There is a God who brought them out of Egypt, but now they're going to assign his name to this golden calf. Uh, Jeroboam I did the same thing uh, about... Uh, 500 years later, he he made a golden calf and set it up in one in Bethel and one up in up in Dan, up in Dan, and he said, "This is the God who brought you out." It's a false religious system. Well, this is the indictment that God's bringing against them. And in Micah three six, he says, "Therefore, you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divination." Well, let me back up to verse five. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace. While they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouths. See, they're they're prophets who were giving them false information. And then God says, therefore, because you have taken the people into darkness, basically, he says, therefore, you shall have night without vision, you shall have darkness without divination. Divination is a tool of these false religions in the Old Testament. It's an occult tool. He says, The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers, that is, these false prophets, will be ashamed. The diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there's no answer from God. God is going to embarrass them. But he says, But truly, in verse 8, But truly... I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all equity. The culture has just come totally apart at the seams. It's a, a culture of injustice, corruption, and the people aren't being taken care of. The only ones who are being taken care of are the aristocracy, and they're basically uh, taking the people's money and using it for their own desires. Uh, they build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Uh, her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. That's what. It, this is where I'm going with this. This is false religion. The priests are teaching for pay. It's prosperity theology in the ancient world. Okay? The, the, the ministry is being perverted for the sake of monetary gain. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord. See, they claim to lean on the Lord. 
but they're teaching falsehood. Okay, let's go back. This is the same kind of thing we have in this situation. In the New Testament, Peter says that they held to a form of godliness but denied its power. You have a lot of people who talk about the Bible. We're going to do Bible study. We're going to talk about the Bible. We've got a great church. We do all kinds of wonderful, good things, but they're doing it in the power of the flesh. They're not being biblical in their approach to ministry, and they have compromised at the very core of their religion. It makes people feel good. They get motivated to do what? To go live a better life, but they're not being taught the true grace of salvation, or they're not being taught how to walk by the Spirit to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is this is a problem we see. We, we've seen this today in the ancient world. The Jews assimilated to pagan religion, and we've seen this in, in modern America in the West, where they've adopted false ideas, brought it into Christianity, and changed the nature of Christianity so it's no longer biblical Christianity. Now, what we learn about this is that these false religious ideas come out of the devil. They are the devil's doctrines. You get into places like Leviticus 19.26. Now, divination is brought up in the passage because the people go to the spiritual leaders, the diviners, to find out what the solution is to their problem. So who are they going to ultimately? They're going to... The Philistines are seeking answers from the devil. Leviticus 19.26 prohibits divination and soothsaying. This, but why? Because it is demonic. Deuteronomy 18.14, these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. This is demonic religion. We went over this last time just to remind you, these false religions are not just, just neutral statues of stone and wood and, and metal. But there is something demonic behind it. In Psalm 106.36, we're told they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. And in verse 38, these demons are the idols of Canaan. That, that behind Islam, behind Hinduism, behind Mormonism, behind Jehovah's Witnesses is a demonic Influence. That's false religion. Now, there are different degrees of demonic influence, but all false religion is a result of demonic influence. In 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul says what the, when the, 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 the gods that the Gentiles sacrifice to are demons. They're not God. Deuteronomy 32.17 says they sacrifice to demons who were not God. So there's this hidden, invisible uh, spiritual warfare. The only solution for us as Christians is to put on the whole armor of God, to understand the solutions that God has given us, that we can put on this whole armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, so what's happened is the Philistines, the pagans, are turning to a demonic source to get an answer to their question. And so they, they, um, they go to the, the, the diviners and they say two things. What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? That's the first question. The second thing is 
tell us how we should send it to its place. So what are we going to do to it? And that implies that they're all, they already know that they're going to send it back. What are we going to do, and how do we do it? How do we get this back? What's the mechanism? And then we come to verse 3. It's particularly interesting to look at this dialogue that's going on between the Philistines and these religious leaders because they are given to us in Scripture to demonstrate the spiritual darkness of the, of the Philistines and how they're so divorced from truth. But they have elements of truth in what they say. And that's the way any good false religion is. There's elements of truth there. You can read uh, uh, about Mormonism. You can read about uh, Islam. You can read about other world religions. And you can find certain good things that are there because they're living in the real world that God created. But the framework is totally false. And you'd never encourage anybody to go read the Quran or read the Bhagavad Gita or read the Book of Mormon just to find the few kernels of things that are there that that reflect uh, some form of truth. This is why the Bible, the Torah, warned completely against being involved at all with divination, soothsayers, or, 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 or witches. So we come to verse, verse 3, and we start looking at uh, the answer that is there. Now, So they said, that's the religious leaders, the false religious leaders, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it empty. But by all means, return it to him with a trespass offering. Now, where did they get the idea of a trespass offering? See, that shows that the Philistines have some knowledge of what is in the Torah of the Jews. and But they perverted it and converted it to their use within their their demonic system. Now, it sounds really harsh to a lot of modern ears if you say that all of the non-biblical world philosophies and world religions are demonic. But what the Bible presents is that we only have two options. When Adam and Eve were created and God was instructing them, the only worldview was a God-centered Yahweh-centered worldview. But when they disobeyed God, it was because they were listening to whom? To this serpent, to Satan who came into the garden. So that's a counter worldview, a wrong worldview. And the very first sin is the result of listening to Satan's ideas of how the creation ought to run. And once Adam disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and became spiritually dead, then it's the, this is what uh, Genesis shows in the next 11 chapters is how that depraved, fallen heart of man generates all these different false ideas. But those false ideas ultimately have their root in Satan because Satan, as Jesus said, is the father of all lies. So that means that all these false systems, whether it's Aristotelianism or Platonism or Cartesianism or uh, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Shintoism or Mormonism, whatever the false idea is, any kind of work salvation is comes from the devil. That's his whole idea. 
So that's what you have here is they are uh, they they're they're promoting to one degree or another demonic ideas. Now, every human being, we have to recognize that the Bible says every one of us is demon-influenced. To the degree that we absorb the ideas of the world, which is the Satan's cosmic system, we're influenced by Satan. Now, part of that mix is that there's establishment principles from the Word of God. There's morality There's wisdom principles, what I'm going to call establishment wisdom that's reflected in Proverbs, that if you do things a certain way, if you're moral, if you're chaste, if you uh, live in a monogamous marriage, if you're responsible with your use of money, invest it wisely, as Proverbs says, even if you're not a believer, you will experience a certain stability and blessing in your life. But to the, the further you get away from biblical truth, the more that is at risk, and that will fall apart. So some people have imbibed less deeply and some more deeply of the devil's doctrines, but the more you reject establishment wisdom, it's going to create a greater and greater divide and fragment in the culture. Now, as we get into this next little section, we see that the Philistines as we saw earlier in chapter 4 when they said, oh, the ark of God is coming to the battle, we're going to lose. See, they knew enough about history that they had come to understand that there were some things that were true about this God. And, and so they're accepting that, but they're not accepting God himself. So they say, well, this is what you need to do. There needs to be some kind of uh, uh, an offering there and then God is going to release us from this judgment. God is going to release us uh, from this particular uh, curse. So uh, they're asking these two questions. What shall we do with the ark, and how are we going to get it there? And this is their response in verse 4. They use their pagan ideas. Their, uh, verse 4 here. They're going to use their pagan ideas that you have to have uh, some sort of of, um, uh, 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 of offering that relates to the problem in order to mollify the God. This is always a characteristic of of some kind of, of paganism. But they do recognize that there has to be some sort of offering or propitiation to God, so they offer these these uh, uh, five uh, tumors, if you ever want to know what a golden hemorrhoid looked like, I thought I would find a picture of it for you, and uh, a, a golden rat. And the, fi- the number five is significant because it represents the five lords of the Philistines, the five cities of the, of the Philistines, and that they are all coming together in order to uh, placate, uh, placate God. Well, but their paganism shows through. First of all, they're trying to buy off God with gold. That's not biblical. Second is that they are making an offering out of unclean animals, the rodents, the mice, the rats. Those are unclean animals, and that's not uh, acceptable to God to make an offering of an unclean animal. And then the the, uh, the anal tumors are in one of the most unclean areas of the human body. So they are. It just shows that the, the mix of paganism. They're, they're making it up as they as they go along and trying to uh, buy God off. 
But they come up with an idea because they're not really sure yet that this is God's doing, that this is the God of the Israelites doing. So we're going to make this, this empirical test just, just to, just to make sure this is what's really going on. And we're going to come up with a test. And the test is that, that, uh, we're going to put together a, a cart. And so we read about this. Let's look at verse, um, uh, verse 7. Now they're going to make this, this new cart, and they're going to take two milch cows, uh, as it says in the King James, or two milk cows in the New King James. A milk cow is a cow that has just recently calfed and is still uh, nourishing her calf. And mama doesn't want to be separated from her baby calf. So that's one test, is to see if the mother will go away from the calf. So they put the calves away in the barn, and they take these two untrained uh, uh, mother cows, recently, recently, uh, they've recently given birth, and they've never been trained to pull together as a team and to pull a cart. Now, if you've ever tried to take two animals, two mules or two horses or two donkeys or, or, or two cows and hook them up to a cart and immediately think they're going to pull together, they don't. You have to train them to do that. So test one is will they leave their calves? Test two is can they pull together? And test three is will they on their own take the ark to Beth Shemesh? Three tests. And so, of course, what happens is that they uh, take these two cows who've never been who's never been yoked, hitch the calves to the cart, take their calves home, away from them, and then the, uh, they take the ark, they put it on the cart, put the articles of gold uh, in a chest next to it on the back of the cart, then they just send it away, and they let it go to see what would happen. And those two milk cows just took off straight. They didn't turn to the left or to the right. They went straight to Beth Shemesh. Now, the reason they're sending it to Beth Shemesh is Beth Shemesh was still under Philistine control. Even though it wasn't part of Philistia, it was part of Israel's territory. Beth Shemesh was under their dominion. It was under their control. So if something happened, they could go, and if it if it didn't resolve itself, they could go and recapture the ark. The other interesting thing that we ought to know about Beth Shemesh is that Beth Shemesh was a an area that was had a large contingent of Levites. So you have a Levitic a bunch of Levitical priests living there who should know the law. So what we're going to do now is we shift back from Philistia to Israel. We're going to see how how confused the Israelites are because they haven't been reading their Bible. They haven't been studying the law, and they're going to misuse and abuse the ark and come under severe divine judgment. Uh, they Remember, they lost 34,000 at the Battle of Aphek. They're going to lose, according to the Masoretic text, 57,000 here because they treat God lightly. They abuse the holiness of God. They don't treat God uh, with respect. And so it comes to Beth Shemesh. The cows headed straight there, went along the highway. They're lowing as they they go. I mean, they're calling out to their calves, but they're not turning around and going back. Uh, they don't really want to go, but God is directing them, 
and they're being followed by the lords of the Philistines. And when the people of Beth Shemesh, now remember these are mostly Levites, are out in the fields at the wheat harvest. This would be late May, early June. They raised their eyes, they saw the ark, and they started to rejoice. The Levites uh, took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, put them on this large stone, and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifices to the Lord that day. Now, it's going to be described in the next verse, what they did, or in verse 14. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart, and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. What did they do wrong? Nope. No sacrifice is a cow. All legitimate sacrifices are bulls or male animals, okay? They don't know that. They're violating the law, so they're mishandling this. The second thing that's going wrong here is that after the ark was built and went into the tabernacle, nobody saw it. When When they moved, when they brought the ark out of the tabernacle, they covered the ark in its covering. And when the ark led the way, it wasn't uncovered. Nobody looked on the ark. The ark was to be kept with respect and kept hidden in the holy of holies. No one could approach God. This is the throne of God. No one could approach God except for the high priest. So they are treating God with disrespect. They don't know the law. They're being disobedient. They are violating his his holiness. And so they, they... tear up the wood for the ark to use it to build a fire. They killed the cows and offered them as a burnt offering. Then they took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, which were the articles of gold, put them on the large stone, offered the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And this is God's response. You think, they've worshipped God. Isn't this wonderful? But the picture that we see here is, as always through the Bible, God says, you come to me on my terms, not on your terms. You may feel like you worship. That doesn't mean you worshiped. If you're not in right relationship with God, if you haven't confessed sin, if you're not walking by the Spirit, it's not worship. Just because the music is uplifting, just because the sermon is motivating, doesn't mean you've worshiped. If it's not according to the standards of Scripture, it's not worship. Jesus told the woman at the well that there would come a time when you would worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. Both have to be true, or all you're doing is having a social club on Sunday morning. And unfortunately, that's what happens in a lot of churches. So God looks down on them, at the men at Beth Shemesh, and because they had looked into the ark of the Lord, he struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. See, the Bible says if you don't do what God says to do, then God is not going to deliver you. This is salvation. This is why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There's only one way, to believe in him, not to believe and do works, because the works cancel out the faith. Just to believe in Christ alone, faith alone, not faith plus works, not faith plus sincerity, not faith plus anything. It's just believing it, just trusting 
in just trusting in Christ alone. So the response of the men of Beth Shemesh, this is an evil God. Look at what he's done to us. Is that what they said? No. This is a holy God, and we can't stand before a holy God. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? He is more than a product of our imagination. He is more than something we've created in our image. This God is bigger and greater than anything we can imagine, and we can't control this God. Where shall it go from us? They don't want it around either. So they sent messengers to Kiriath-Jerim. Those of you who have gone on trips to Israel with me, the last night we go to a little Arab restaurant in an Arab village called Abu Ghosh. That's Kiriath-Jerim. Okay? They sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came, and they took the ark of the Lord, brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. Notice they... They're going to put it in seclusion so people can't come and look at it. They consecrated Eleazar, his son. Now, we don't know who this Abinadab is, but Eleazar is a priestly name. From Eleazar was, a son, was the name of one of the sons of Aaron, so uh, it, probably a Levitical family. Consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time, it was there 20 years. This is going to help us establish a chronology. 20 years, and the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, does that surprise you, that last sentence? You'd think they rejoiced because God was back. What's the problem? God's back. There's judgment because of their assimilation to paganism, and they've got to straighten out. And that's, that's what's going to happen. The next couple of chapters will definitely talk about the problems that will come because the root problem hasn't been resolved yet, which is their spiritual rebellion, their moral relativism, and their failure to deal honestly with the holiness of God in all of its dimensions. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And Father, we pray that you would help us to think more precisely about the fact that you are a holy God. And we are called, as Peter says, to be holy because you are holy. And that at least that implies that we are not to treat you lightly, treat your word lightly, treat you with disrespect. That means that we are to take our relationship with you much more seriously, that you are to be the focal point of everything in our life, and that we are to spend time with you every day in prayer, in the reading of your word, the study of your word, and learning to live consistently so that we might be what you have called us to be, that is, a light shining in a dark and perverse world. We pray that you would challenge us with these things. In Christ's name, amen.